welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Peter Rosher, Global Head of Reed Smith's International Arbitration Practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our Arbitral Insight podcast series. And I'm delighted today to have as our guest the fabulous Dr. Kabir Dugal. Hi, Kabir. Hey, Gautam. Delighted to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. I've been I've been looking forward to doing a podcast with you for a long, long time. Now, many people will know Kabir, and uh, but I'm going to give you a little quick uh, introduction to him. He has an incredibly varied and illustrious resume, so I'm going to try and do him justice by referring to it as briefly as I can. So, Dr. Dugal, which I'll avoid the temptation to call Kabir. Yes, please, um, it, please. Is a, Here is how I go. <laughs> no, I'm not reprimanded. No, I'm, I'm, I'm just pulling your leg. I'm just pulling your leg because I know I can because, uh, because. Uh, that's what it's like when I talk to you. I'm always a little mischievous. But <laughs> but Kabir is qualified in a number of jurisdictions. He's qualified to practice in New York, in Washington, D.C., England and Wales, where he's a barrister, and in India. Um, he is uh, a senior international arbitration advisor with Arnold and Porter uh, in New York. And uh, he has a very, very broad arbitration practice, specializes in international arbitration, uh, in international investment treaty arbitration, and public international law. He sits as an arbitrator, a mediator, and he's also an academic. So I told you he's got an incredibly varied and and illustrious resume. And uh, he has, it's fair to say, a very international outlook on things. And you can sense that from where Kabir is admitted and the breadth of his practice. Apart from uh, his work as an arbitrator, mediator, and as counsel, he's also a very passionate champion for diversity, equity, and inclusion, something amongst many things which he and I have in common and which we will be touching upon in this podcast. So, Kabir, I hope that introduction did you justice and didn't sort of, you know, embarrass you too much. But I had to uh, try to get in a few of those things because it is an absolute delight to be speaking with you today. Likewise. Now, Kabir, tell me, how did you find law or how did law find you? (laughs) Thank you, Gotham. I'm really delighted to be here. I will write you the check for all the kind words you have said later. (laughs) I look forward to it. (laughs) (laughs) But it's a real pleasure to be here. I know we're going to be touching on some some important themes that you mentioned, like diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, Gotham, I got into law, I don't want to say by chance, but I got into law a little later in my career. And by that, I mean, I wanted to do something international. You know, I grew up in the Middle East. I'm of Indian origin, uh, you know, so I was always internationally inclined. And I think I was attracted to foreign service of becoming a diplomat. 
And so I decided, you know, I'm going to do management. I'll then try to figure out foreign service. And that's what I got into uh, educationally. You know, I was studying management. And you had to do classes in finance and accounting. And the realization hit me that this is super not interesting for me. Uh, and I think it was at that stage when I did sort of a personality analysis on my own. And I realized that law would be something interesting. You know, it combines my passion for speaking, for writing. You really can make a difference. I realized at that stage that there could be an international aspect no idea what any of that meant, but I realized you can do interesting things internationally with the law degree. And so that was sort of my foray into law. Uh, to all the youngsters listening, I would advise them not to do what I did. It is probably better for you to figure these things out a little earlier. And Gautam, you know, I, I feel you would probably agree with me when we look at this new generation of lawyers coming mm -hmm. up. Mm -hmm. There seems to be a lot more thoughtfulness than I think it was a generation before them. You know, they, they seem to be a lot more, oh, focused, a lot more driven. So that's probably a good thing. No, I agree with you. And I think and I shudder to think how I would do if I was trying to get admitted into a law firm right now, um, you know, because I got admitted, what, over 30 years ago. So I, you know, I was thinking to myself, my goodness, how would I be able to replicate what some of these very, very well-organized people do now, as you say? But, you know, but your international background is really, I think it, it, it defines you in, I mean, in terms of what you do, Kabir, because, yeah. you know, your upbringing, your exposure to different cultures, yeah. Um, and the fact that you've worked in so many different places right. uh, and that really blends very well with what you do right now. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, for all of us in this field, there is this commonality. You know, we like meeting different people. We like different cultures. Often we like trying different foods. That, I think, makes for a very good international arbitration lawyer. Because at our core, we like international things. Oh, absolutely. And I'm even more convinced of this every time, every time I do anything abroad, that you can't do what we do in the world of international arbitration unless you enjoy meeting people, you enjoy different cultures, you enjoy different legal traditions, and you enjoy different types of food. And, and that's definitely one thing that you said. I completely agree with you, Kabir. So, so then tell us then, sort of, you know, so when law found you, right, which I guess is something which I think is the sort of sense of it all, which is great. You know, who has been, who's influenced you the most as a mentor or mentors um, in the course of your career to date? You know, Gotham, that is such a great question but also such a hard question. Uh, just because, you know, I believe in life, one should have many mentors. I'm a very firm believer in this is, you know, I'm trying to weave in some pieces of wisdom based on my own life to the extent anybody wants it. 
But this is one of my very big suggestions that is, you know, have many mentors, have people who look and sound like you, have people who are completely different from you. I think we need both. So I have too many mentors to acknowledge. Now, I'll just share a couple of things where I feel mentors have been so instrumental in my life. You know, like I said, I got into law school wanting to do something international. And at Oxford and at NYU, I really trained to become an international human rights lawyer, something I deeply care about and something, you know, that I still think is super important for us as lawyers. We graduate in the United States in May. So graduation is very soon going to come up for all the current current students. Uh, in April, the realization hit me that I have to figure out a visa status if I have to stay in this country. And so I needed something permanent. And this is, again, realities of life. You know, you have to be flexible. You have to see what makes sense. And I went to my professor at NYU who taught me international law, the, the very famous professor Tom Frank. He passed away very unfortunately a year after I graduated. So I do feel I was very privileged to have the opportunity to study under him. And I just went to him and told him, I don't know what to do with my life. You know, the proverbial quarter life crisis at its worst. And he, he told me, I'll, you know, that's this field arbitration. You may want to consider that since you're interested in international law. And, you know, my student is the chairman of Curtis. Let me speak to him. And this is the year that Lehman collapsed. Right. And nobody was hiring. It was a really stressful time in the U.S., and I get an interview on Thursday, I get the offer on Monday, and I'm told I can start as soon as I graduate. Wow, amazing. And, you know, I, I can falsely say this was all me, but it was him. And this is where mentors really can be so instrumental in your life. Now, I have too many mentors, and I really risk omitting some of them so I don't want to mention all of them but all my mentors I love you and I'm forever grateful to you. Now that was a lovely way to put it because we do have I mean I know I personally uh, have many people that I regard as really fundamental to me and what I've done and what I intend to do right. and um, and I think you're absolutely right about having that varied blend of people and, um, you know, I think that's a theme we'll come back to when we, delve, uh, when we delve into diversity, equity and inclusion. I think right. we'll come back to that because that's also a, a very, I think, another very prevalent theme in all of that. Right. So, you know, in terms of then arbitration, right, that's something, as you just mentioned, sort of sort of clicked in terms of, of, right. of an opportunity. Although I think you're being far too modest about yourself because your merit is stratospheric. So you... You walked into that job because you deserve to, um, <laughs> but you know. Te but tell me a little bit about how you branched into sort of the world of 
public international law and investment treaty arbitration, because that's, of course, become a very important area over the last sort of 20, 25 years or so. And, um, you know, tell us a little bit more about how you you came into that world. Thank you, Gotham. You know, I got into this field sort of by chance. And again, this is something which for your younger audience members, right? I feel they don't have the luxury of that for better or worse. You know, I have my interview and the firm that I interview with, Curtis, at that stage was representing Venezuela. And this is in the mid-2000s when investment arbitration was still relatively nascent. You know, you had your initial wave of Argentine cases. The decisions are just coming out. Uh, I, I will never forget this moment that in my interview, they ask me, do you know Exit? And I tell them, I do know Exit. We had one class on Exit when I did the BCL at Oxford. And it was like this amazing moment. You know, this guy knows what he's talking about. I just compare that. Now we do 36 classes just on investment arbitration. So things have really changed. Uh, And this is sort of how I get into investment arbitration. We get into it largely from a state side. You're representing a sovereign. And I feel the resources were still so limited. You didn't have any of these big databases giving you cases. It was often people who had their secret little stashes. That's where you got the cases. You often were looking at treatises. So my public international law training, I think, came in very handy. Uh, It was a fun time. It was an exciting time. It was a nerve-wracking time, right? Because often when you were asked questions, you didn't know, you know, you didn't have this past case law to look at and try to justify what you were saying. So you were doctrinally trying to make the best argument you could. An exciting time, a time I think the younger generation is probably not going to have. You know, I think the way our practices evolved We expect you to have specialized academically. Uh, There's just a lot more drive. A lot of them write precisely on these topics. So it's just a different world. No, I agree with you so much, Kabir, you know, because I always did from when I first qualified litigation and arbitration. Uh, But I did my first investment treaty case in 2002. And you know, it was a completely different world because, as you say, there, there wasn't much written about it okay. at, at, at that time. And I hadn't yeah. studied that area as as part of my legal studies. So it was a really sort of as, you know, our American friends, you're, I'm speaking to you while you're in New York, would say you, you're drinking from the fire hose in that <laughs> sense, you know. <laughs> because you literally were, you were literally, you were literally at the sharp end of things. But it's fascinating, and and as you say, it's um, it's 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 sort of gone on to become such a incredibly uh, much well structured area. But then let me move on to a slightly different thing. Right. You know, apart from your work as counsel and 
your academic pursuits, you regularly sit as an arbitrator. So I'd, 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 I would like to ask you, first of all, if you share with our listeners how you first got to get appointed as an arbitrator and some of your reflections on what you as an arbitrator particularly like when you're sitting at the other end of the table and you're receiving submissions and statements of case from the lawyers. That's fantastic, Gotham. There's there's a lot here, so I'll try to do this. And, you know, feel free to catch me if I miss anything, because I do think this is a good (laughs) question. You know, I think when you're starting off as an arbitrator, your initial cases are going to come from an institution. And a lot of institutions do see value in getting younger arbitrators in. Uh, I just make a small asterisk here. The institutions are often going to give you cases as a sole arbitrator. That's how you begin. Those cases are often small and by firms that don't do a lot of arbitration. And so those cases often tend to be complicated. And so it is, again, your fire hose analogy of baptism by fire. But that's how you're going to get your initial cases. Gotham, I think, you know, It really boils down to your firm, and especially if you're in big law, whether your firm is amenable to you serving as an arbitrator and whether you can overcome conflicts and all the related problems. Uh, I have been, I think, lucky that my firm has allowed me to do this. Uh, At this stage, I'm only serving as an arbitrator you know, double hatting is a very big problem. And I'm trying to avoid, you know, I'm just trying to avoid any arguments and double hatting. So I'm only serving as an arbitrator right now. And it's a lot of fun. Now, if you like advocacy, if you like argumentation, you're probably not going to enjoy the arbitrator work too much. Uh, You know, Arbitrators, in my humble opinion, should not be lawyers. (laughs) And it is a very difficult thing when you see arbitrators trying to become advocates. I think it's a very interesting point. Very interesting point. But I think for the younger audiences, you know, I mean, I think if you're thinking about an arbitrator profile, build your profile towards becoming an arbitrator. Write, speak. Let institutions know you're ready to take appointments. And if you get the appointment, don't screw it up. You know, sometimes you see people, you know, the senior associates who want these cases, they get it, and then council work comes in, and then the arbitrator work takes a back seat. I just, it gives a bad name to the process when that happens. Uh, what would I like to see, Gotham? That's a great question, you know, and I think you really, when you're sitting on the other side, realize frivolous arguments, but just these fairly endemic things in our practice, particularly in investment arbitration, but I think true generally, of very long, 
duplicative witness statements, cross-examinations that are really not accomplishing anything, or just, you know, bad behavior. Those are things that become very apparent to you as an arbitrator. And when you see counsel doing that, there's always this moment like, what are you doing? Why do you think this is effective or this is helping your case? So this would be my suggestion. You know, I think zealous advocacy is a good thing. You know, I think all of our legal traditions tell us act in the best interest of your client. But that doesn't mean you have to raise every stupid argument, you know, some amount of judicious thinking and some amount of, you know, is this going to help us? Is this relevant to the big picture or are we fighting about pennies? Some of that kind of analysis, I think, would just help arbitration retain its original purpose of being effective, of being you know, quick, of being cost sensitive, things that we're losing. Now, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, you've really summarized my thoughts entirely. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of brevity. Right. And simplicity, right. and and avoiding too much showboating. Right. Uh, no, there, there's there's no point in it at all. It's just pointless. Right. It, no, no. Thank you for that. That's very, very again, very, very insightful. And I I just want to move on to a slightly different area now, which is something we we touched on in the course of the introduction, which is diversity, equity, and inclusion. You're one of very few ethnically diverse prominent arbitrators and there should be a lot more like you things are changing but and they'll change more but there are but, but there's no doubt there's not enough people who are diverse from an ethnic point of view right or who are diverse from a gender point of view correct and there is a lot of more scope for right. change and you and you and I amongst other things have the pleasure of being on the advisory board of Indian Women in International Arbitration. Correct. Again, we are both passionate supporters of women. Correct. And I just wonder, because you are such a, a, a wonderful supporter of diversity, equity and inclusion, I wonder whether you could share your thoughts as to what more we can all do and what more the institutions can really do to really embrace this and not just say, yep, yeah, it's important, but now we're going to really make something happen. We're going to affect real change. I wonder if you could just share some thoughts on that. Uh, thank you so much, Gotham. And, you know, let me just begin by acknowledging all the good work you are doing in this space. You know, I think it is important for everybody in this space to be talking about DEIB issues. And I think, as you said, you know, it's good for us to be talking about all forms of diversity, you know, both of us are men. But I think we have a very important role to be talking about gender issues, along with women, I don't think we ever want to talk over them, that is not the idea. <laughs> but to be equal supporters and partners, because these are societal issues and we all have a role to change it. Uh, Gotham, how do we move the needle? And I think there are a couple of things that need to be done. I think the first thing is we need to recognize 
diversity can take a variety of forms. And our community has, I think, very rightly identified gender. And for the past few years, ethnic diversity. But when we're talking about diversity, there are so many visible and non-visible forms of diversity that often don't get spoken about, right? Mental health, LGBTQ rights, uh, socioeconomic rights, age, language, right? All of these are realities that we need to be thinking about and we need data on them because that helps us see where we are, where we are headed. I mean, I think some of the recent gender reports that came out actually show a decline in numbers. So, you know, I think we had moved from the eight, nine, about 10 to 15 years ago to close to 20, 25%. But we're seeing a slight backtracking on gender. For some of these forms of diversity, we don't have data. Like most institutions give us data on nationality which is a very misleading data in both of our countries, for example, right? If you say British. Absolutely. <laughs> it's not getting the nuance of a British Asian person's experience, which may be much more challenging than an Anglo-Saxon white British person. So I do think we need more granular data. LGBTQ rights, I mean, I think institutions are so cautious recognizing the international practice that they don't even want to get data on some of these things. So I think the more data we have, the better things are going to be. Gautam, I also do think we need to be getting the clients, not lawyers, to talk about diversity. Because a lot of companies, as a part of the corporate mandate, have diversity, inclusion, and equity, belonging as, as core themes. Now, when a lawyer is put in an arbitration dispute, they want to win. Diversity takes a back seat. I don't want to say they forget it, but the winning is the core priority. And that often means we are going to hire people who look like us, people we know, since decision makers in, in most big law firms tend to look a particular way, arbitrators tend to look a particular way. I think the more we're able to get general counsels involved in the decision making, the more we are going to see change. Institutions have done a pretty good job. They see systemic issues and they see survival much better. It is a complex issue. You know, we are a reflection of society. And so all the problems in society we are going to find in our practice, even if we don't acknowledge them. But I think some of these would be small efforts to try and change things. You know, all these amazing organizations trying to put a spotlight on different forms of diversity. Again, a good and positive thing. Hopefully, the generation under us, Gotham, doesn't probably have to go through the kinds of things I think you and I would have faced. Uh, you know, which may not... Yeah. yeah, it may always not be overt, but, you know... You feel the difference in standards. Oh, you yeah. feel you are subject it, to different requirements. So hopefully, we make it easier for them. Well, absolutely. I, I I think that's really the big thing. It's sort of people like us and others, uh, and 
um, we know who we're talking about, have a big role to play because we're hopefully enabling those who come after us to have the benefit of all the obstacles and barriers and other obstructions that we that we had but which bit by bit are being moved away so um and 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 i really want to say i mean you know you being who you are and doing what you do and the example you set is it is immense because as i say there aren't many arbitrators who have your profile and i think it's a wonderful it really is a wonderful thing to see you flourishing so so much and uh, I look forward to uh, more and more from you because uh, you know you know you really are an absolute role model for so many people. Thanks, um, and I, I just to echo that you know I hope both of us can see many more people who look different and who sound different and are getting this opportunity to flourish. I think that for I think both of us would be I think what we would define as success. I'm speaking Absolutely. to you. Yeah. No, no, you're right. That's what success would look like, yeah. for sure. Um, no, so, but thank you. I mean, it's such a wonderful that It's been so great to talk to you about these issues and about, you know, how you got to where, to where you've got to and those who've supported you. Now, we're coming, alas, to the end of the podcast, but we always end our podcast with a bit of lighthearted discussion and career. Sure. This is no exception. Um, we are going to maintain that tradition here, right? So, what? So, so what I and this actually, so many of our listeners love this segment, right? They of course love hearing the incredibly uplifting stories that our guests have, and you are no exception. But they, but they love the next segment, which is much more lighthearted and nothing to do with law, right? right. Or practice, or arbitration, or anything like that. So, the first thing. What's your favorite sort of music, your favorite band or singer? <laughs> you know, Gotham, this is a very tough question because I think I'm very temperamental. And based on my mood, there's different kind of music that I like to listen to. Uh, you know, just one thing as somebody who's now in different jurisdictions, one thing I consciously try to do is try to listen to music either from the Middle East or from South Asia. Because I feel for me, that is one way to connect to different places that have played a very big part in my life and you don't lose the language. So there's some connection, some, so that's what I would say. Music from the Middle East or from South Asia. It's a great choice. I mean, I can tell you, Having grown up with South Asian music, amongst other things, uh, from when I was a young boy, I could identify with that uh, very much. So, uh, then, what about? Let's move to film. How, um, what you know? What about your favorite sorts of film? And do you have a favorite film? Uh, you, you know, Kotham, I don't watch a lot of movies. So this is, again, a very tough one. I, I, I've never been very, very deep into movies. If I have to watch movies, the two genres that I would generally select, they're either going to be, and they're completely polarizing. So this is where you can see uh, the craziness that sometimes <laughs> we tend to have in us. I will either watch movies on history which is i think one of my big passions in life 
or I'm going to watch slapstick comedies. So those are the two genres. They're brilliant. <laughs> uh, no, two brilliant genres that are very different, but um, are both very appealing as well. You know, one expands your mind, one expands your humor, which is all great. Um, so, okay, now the last question. Uh, because you are an, an international man, many would say an, an, inter- an international man of mystery. Um, so tell us if you've got a, a favorite travel destination or place that you love to visit. <laughs> uh, Gotham again. This, these are very hard questions because, you know, we love traveling and, you know, there are so many cities and so many countries that I think are absolutely beautiful. I just got back from one country, a country that I think people don't think about a lot. And it was one of the most spectacular places to have visited. Uh, And it's the country of Uzbekistan. And I really would urge everybody, Google the cities of Samarkand, Bukhara, and Kiva. Because they're unbelievably beautiful cities. Some of them go back centuries. They were the heart of the Silk Road. They were at one stage in their history, the centers of learning and civilization. And I really do recommend it. Even though as a vegetarian, I had a very hard time in Uzbekistan. It's still the, the history, the culture, the people more than made up for just eating pizza every night. Oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. You can imagine um, how tough it must have been for you as a vegetarian in Uzbekistan. You know, I remember, I'll just tell you very briefly, over the years, amongst other places, I've had the great privilege of having been to Mongolia twice on work and to, to Kazakhstan a few times on work. And those are also countries not for vegetarians. Um, and uh, but uh, but they are wonderful countries and I shall definitely put Uzbekistan on my to-do list because I've not been there yet so but thank you so much Kabir it's been an absolutely delightful discussion with you thank you very much for taking the time and I just want to just end by saying I look forward to seeing you in person very very soon we're doing this podcast with me in the UK, you in the US, and I very much look forward to seeing you in person very, very soon. All the best and thank you again. This has been so much fun, Gautam, and I look forward to seeing you very soon. Excellent. Thank you. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email arbitralinsights at reedsmith.com. To learn about the Reed Smith Arbitration Pricing Calculator, a first-of-its-kind mobile app that forecasts the costs of arbitration around the world, search Arbitration Pricing Calculator on reedsmith.com or download for free through the Apple and Google Play app stores. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.